After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Thanks, Sam. That's been terrific. Um, look, uh, apologies. I am going to sit um, to preach tonight. Um, uh, that's um, I've uh, had a bit of tension in my back, and so this just makes it easier for me. And uh, and I think we made a bit of a habit. I think uh, um, I think Matt did this last week. So uh, apologies for this. But hey, good to see you guys. Okay, great to see you. Um, so, uh, yeah, so a little bit of a, a back problem. Thanks, um, Sam, for reading. And just to let you know that we begin a, a series on prayer tonight. So Matt prayed on prayer, uh, uh, preached on prayer last night, and we're now starting a series on prayer. Um, and, um, and then just as a, a further point of explanation, if, you've, uh, if you're thinking, well, Mark's got a bad back, but man, was he getting into worship. Here's just, a, uh, just to let you in on a secret. 
my brother-in-law showed me this great stretch for when I've got a bad back. It's not like, you stand like this, okay, you, you, and you hold that for a long while. And it's the most fantastic stretch, not just because it sorts your back out, but because you can do the, it in the middle of an evangelical worship service. So if ever you've got a bad back and you want to get away with a bit of back stretching, just use that one. It's fantastic. Okay, so there we are. Anyway, let's, um, let's uh, pray before I begin. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal great things to us through what you say. And Lord, we pray more than that, that we'll be not like people who look in a mirror and immediately forget what we look like, but Lord, that we will look intently into your word and we will go away and put it into practice. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the uh, title of tonight's sermon is When Jesus Poured Out His Heart in Prayer. Now, when I was a young Christian, we used to have something called praying with wheels on. Anybody ever heard that expression? Uh, praying with wheels on. And you might have a different saying for this but essentially it's those kind of prayers that you say so you're deli you know, deliberately to be overheard so you know mom and daddy sitting next to the child's bedside might pray something like this dear lord help little sally not to leave her bed unmade and to be more respectful of her mommy and daddy amen that is a prayer with wheels on. Maybe you've got a different expression, as I say. Or overheard in a Sunday school class, Dear God, could you please send Mickey Johnson to another summer camp this year? Amen. <laughs> so, you know, when we pray in order to be overheard, to send a message, uh, well, that's a bit cheeky. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He does a little bit of a cheeky prayer. Uh, but actually... He prays some very profound things. He prays, for instance, that they may be one as we are one. And shortly we're going to come to communion. And that's the expression for us in the Christian faith of being one together, of eating from one bread, being of one body. So he says a whole lot of profound things in this prayer. Uh, and he prays deliberately to be overheard because those things are important but actually more importantly because he wants to provide instruction in prayer and so I'm not going to preach tonight about what he prays but I'm going to talk about how he prays see if you can follow along and not only how he prays but why he might want to be overheard and what we're going to see is he prays with passion, he prays for promises, he prays for protection, and he prays with pride. So let's begin right off. He prays with passion. Now, I have spoken at least twice recently about praying with passion in our prayers. Not least just a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking about Hannah's prayer. And so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but... When I've spoken previously, I've talked about passion coming from need or coming from a deep crisis or from deep hurt. But actually, the passion in this prayer that Jesus prays is very different. It comes, uh, passion that comes through love, through intimacy, through affection. There's only one other place in the New Testament where Jesus 
deliberately play, pray so he can be overheard, and it's outside the tomb of Lazarus. And this is in John 11, it says in verse 41, they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I, I know you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. So he deliberately play, prays out loud. And why does he do that? Because the previous verses say, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So the only other place, place in the New Testament where Jesus prays to be deliberately overheard, he does it to express his love, uh, in this case, for Lazarus. In our passage, we see his love for the disciples expressed in, for instance, verse 24. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Jesus is about to leave this earth and he just wants to say, Lord, I love them and I want them to overhear that I love them. Not only do I love them, I want them to be with me where I am and I'm going away. And that is a sorrow, but he just wants them to know that he loves them. So that, as I said, don't want to spend too much time on that. If we, if we don't pray with passion, uh, I think I quoted uh, Spurgeon recently by saying, Spurgeon said, if we don't pray with passion, we don't pray at all. So we pray with passion, and we can, that can be out of need, want, but also out of love and affection. He prays for promises. This uh, passage begins by saying, uh, after these things, he looked up to heaven. And the after that he's talking about is the two previous chapters, where Jesus has laid out all of his promises to his disciples. Uh, here's a few of them. So I've told you this so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. Love each other as I have loved you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. He explains in the previous two chapters that he's chosen us, he's loved us, that we belong to him, we don't belong to the world, we'll be guided by truth. All that is the Father's is mine and I will make it known to you. Now, he's already made all of those promises to the disciples. So why does he now go on in this chapter and pray for those things, for his disciples, and as it happens for us? Is it that he thinks that God doesn't know about these promises or that he won't keep his promises? In um, the story of Daniel, um, in Daniel 9, it says this. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting, in sackcloth and in ashes. He's just opened the scroll of Jeremiah, read that the 70 years is up, he's calculated it out and said, oh, the desolation of Jerusalem is going to be over, therefore 
Does he go on to Expedia and book a flight from Babylon to Jerusalem? Does he get on to Airbnb and book a nice, a nice bijou you know, chalet down by the, the, the pool of Siloam? No, he sees the promise of God and he gets on his knees and he prays for it. Each morning in our house we have prayer and we use a book written by an American called Kenneth Boer and it's called Praying the Scriptures. It turns, what Kenneth Boer does in this little book is he turns scriptural promises into prayers. So the promise that the disciples make to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, in our little booklet of prayer, it becomes, I have believed in the Lord Jesus so that I will be saved, me and my household. It turns promises into prayers and it turns those promises in the third party into the first person. You see, the promises are the hope that we have. They explain the hope that we have. They are basically God's manifesto. Now, unlike the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, uh, God's manifesto is sure. If he says it, it will come about. We can be confident of his promises. It's God's will. But that doesn't mean that we just sit back and wait for it to happen. Far from it. It says in 1 John 5.14, apologies because I keep repeating this verse it is probably the, my favorite verse in, in the whole New Testament. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we has, ask anything according to his promises, according to his manifesto, he will hear us. But just because it's in his manifesto, it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for it. And so Jesus, having spent two chapters, he didn't know there were going to be chapters, he spent two chapters explaining the promises to the disciples. He now, in an open prayer before God, prays for all of those same promises. Back to Jesus' prayer for Lazarus. So they took the stone away and Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. Do you hear that echo of 1, uh, 1 John 5.14? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Probably the happiest couple I know um, are Ron and Betty. Um, Ron and Betty Smith. You can't get more down-to-earth names than that, can you? Ron and Betty. But they were my church leaders when I became a Christian as a young man. Uh, they ran a non-conformist Pentecostal church uh, where they had no regular income. They would say they were living by faith. God had called them to the ministry. They were at this poor church up in the northeast in a mining village. Uh, and, you know, very often there was no money. And very often there was nothing in the fridge. Uh, but they believed that promise that said, do not worry about what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. They stood on that promise every single day and they would pray into that. And you know what they would then do? 
At lunchtime, if there was no food in the fridge, they would put pans of water on the stove and they would boil them because they, if anybody came from the church came to see them, they didn't want anybody to know that they didn't have any food. And so they would put pans of water on the stove. And their testimony is that they never went without lunch. They prayed, they put the water on the stove. And visitors would come and say, I don't know why, but the, gro you know, the, the groceries came and I had extra potatoes or whatever. So I thought, you and I just brought them around. Is that okay? And they would say, oh, it's okay, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Into the pan they would go. They never went without having a meal. They stood on the promises of God, but they prayed the promises of God and held him to his word. Okay, third is that um, what Jesus does is he prays a prayer of protection. Now, having said, I'm not going to speak about how Jesus prayed and not what he prays. I'm just going to slightly uh, deviate here, break away, and talk about one of the things he prays for, or rather, actually, one of the things he does not pray for. Because in verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He very deliberately prays that God does not solve the problem for them. In fact, in, at the end of the previous chapter, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. So often our prayers are actually, God, please fix the problem. Please fix the problem. I'm in trouble. Fix the problem. Get me out of here. Jesus deliberately prays, Lord, don't get them out of here. In this world, they're having trouble. Leave them there. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Sometimes we can't explain why we have problems. William Borden, I'll give you a brief uh, synopsis of William's career. He was a phenomenally wealthy young man, an heir to a fortune. After graduating from Yale in 1909, he attended Princeton Theological Seminary before graduating in 1912. Note the dates, 1912. His reputation for wisdom was such that he became a board member of the National Bible Institute, Moody's Bible Institute, and at the age of 22, a member of the North American Council of the China Inland Mission. Shunning his privilege and family fortune, Borden's intention was to become a missionary to the Uyghur Muslims in northwestern China. And so he decided first to study Islam and Arabic in Cairo. In 1913, he contracted cerebral meningitis, and less than three weeks later, he died in Cairo. He was 25. On his grave is, was inscribed, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation 
for such a life. Borden had bequeathed $800,000 to the China-England mission and other agencies. That was, in those days, a fortune. Listen to this. According to an oft-repeated anecdote following Borden's death, his mother found in his Bible the words, no reserve, and a date suggesting it had been written shortly before, or sorry, shortly after he renounced his fortune. Later, he was said, said to have written, no retreat, after his father supposedly told him that he would never hold a position in the family business. Finally, shortly before he died in Egypt, he is supposed to have added the phrase, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctification is the process by which we achieve holiness. Holiness in the Old Testament, in, in other words, in Jesus' day, meant avoiding sickness, avoiding uncleanness, avoiding dead bodies. Jesus deliberately put himself in the way of all of these things. The woman with the issue of blood, the dead girl, the lepers. Jesus goes right in and touches these people but instead of making himself unholy and unclean, he sanctifies the situation. He heals, releases, and cleans, cleans them. There is no explanation for why God sometimes puts us in harm's way other than he has sent us into the world and we are there to bring sanctification, healing, light, and joy. Finally, he prays prayers of pride. Um, this passage actually rem reminds me of my ordination last weekend. Um, when you're put forward for ordination, um, you go through a process of, I'll call it selection. Uh, I think we've got a fancy word for it. But essentially, basically, the final step of that is the bishop makes a decision about you. And the bishop says, yep, I will choose you. Uh, and I'll choose you to go forward for study and training. And, and then she, as it happens, uh, she or he, the bishop, hands you over to the director of ordinance and to the archdeacons. Then at the end of your theological study and some of your training, you go for ordination. And there is a, a part of the ordination that's called the presentation. And each ordinand is presented back to the bishop. So, in my case, I present Mark to be ordained to the office of priest in the Church of God. He is to serve in the parish of St. Michael's. Don't groan, okay? When the ordinance have been presented, the bishop asks these questions to which the appropriate persons respond. Have you, whose duty it is to know these ordinances and examine them, found them to be of godly life and sound learning? They have. 
Do, they believe, do you believe them to be duly called to serve God in this ministry? They do. Bishop, I invite the archdeacons to confirm that the ordinance have taken the necessary oath and made the declaration of assent. They have duly taken the oath of allegiance, blah, 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 and uh, they declared their belief in the faith which is revealed in the Holy Scriptures and set forth in the Catholic creeds and the formularies of the Church of England. I bear witness. In other words, Bishop, what you have given out to us, we present back to you, over, back over to you, Bishop. In this case, Jesus talks with great affection, pride, affirmation, kind of saying, I know they can do the job. I have revealed to you to those who you gave me out of the world they are yours you gave them to me I gave them the words that you gave me and they accepted them and later he says I have completed the work I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do now, I'm not sure my archdeacon spoke with as much conviction as, as Jesus does here about the disciples. But nevertheless, you see what he's doing. I've seen these guys. I've worked with them. And I feel secure in returning back to glory in heaven and leaving them to continue your work. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but only for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Glory has come to me. The risen Lord, sorry, he's not risen yet, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, glory has come to him through those disciples. Such pride, such pride. And even better, he invites us into this same prayer. My prayer is not for them alone. I am not just for these disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He prays for us. He prays for you and me. We're told elsewhere that he is our advocate in heaven. He has such pride in us Imagine the prayers he's saying right now for you and me in heaven. So Jesus, in this passion, passage, prays with passion, affection. He, he prays prayers of promises, the hope. He prays for protection, not for escape from our difficulties. And he prays prayers of pride and affirmation. And then the big, big question, why does he pray these things in our hearing effectively but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them so that I may have the full measure of my joy within them he prays also that we be brought to complete unity and as we go into um, communion now, I think it would just be good if we were to remember 
that he is so joyful about us, that he's so joyful about the thought of us being in unity together. Let's just hold that thought as we go into communion. Amen. Great. We have.